Hi, I'm Deb Hunter, and welcome to All Things Tudor, the podcast that blows the dust off the history books and brings the world of the Tudors roaring back to life. Each episode will bring you awesome guests and topics, stories, and revelations. The power, the sex, the scandals, the romance, and the ruthlessness. So join me, and together we'll pull back the curtain and discover the real lives of the Tudors. Elizabeth, how are you doing today? I'm very well. Thank you so much for inviting me on. It's, it's a real pleasure and an honor. Oh, well, thank you. I was about to say that. You stole my lines. It's wonderful to have you here. And I'm so excited to talk to you. Your career is brilliant. I believe I have every single one of your books. Let's just get right into it. What led to your studies into the tutors? What drives your love of history and tutor history especially? So I've always loved the past. I mean, right from being a tiny child, I was always the one wanting to go and look around castles and read books on the past. So I was always going to do something historic. And at university, I did archaeology, actually. I studied archaeology. It was always historical archaeology. So I liked using the sources and the documents and the material culture to try and present a picture. So I kind of shifted into the Tudors, which had always been a period that I was fascinated in coming at it through archaeology and the material culture. But it's just such a fabulous period. There are so many big characters. And it's really the first period in history that we can see a wide range of personalities, if you like. We're not just talking about the right at the top of the social scale, the king and the queen. We're talking about their court, even lower down the social scale. And we can get inside people's heads to a certain extent. So I just love it. It is a very well-documented era, isn't it? It is. So there's a lot of contemporary records that survive. They have a bit of an advantage. They're mostly in English over the medieval period, which is great news for historians. But it's also been an area that has attracted scholars working on the period for centuries, really, and because it is such a fascinating period. It is well documented and at times it can be hard to find space, but actually there is still such a lot there that is sort of waiting to be uncovered. You just have to look for it. Was there a moment when you decided, I want to be a Tudor academic? Yeah, I mean, I think I was always looking to move into academia and also to sort of publicise my work to a wider audience as well, so to get it sort of out of just university circles. So it was always something I was interested in becoming as part of my career. And the Tudors just really draw me in. So I think midway through my first degree at Cambridge, I think, to be honest, I was thinking, you know, Tudors, late medieval Tudor period, and you know, this is where I wanted to be and this is where I wanted to research and where I think I can make a difference because actually there are areas that I'm researching that are kind of new and exciting and you know actually it's great to bring that research out to a wider audience. Do you have a favorite personality from the Tudor era? See this is a really difficult question and I'm slightly changeable because actually I find so many interesting. 
Margaret Beaufort is a bit of a favourite of mine, and I know she's quite controversial, particularly in recent years, um, with sort of accusations that she's involved in the disappearance of the princess in the tower. But I think actually Margaret is such an important political figure, and it's so interesting to see a woman being highly political and really sort of making a change to sort of on a national level. She's also a really interesting character. She was well aware of the changes to fortune that she experienced throughout her life. I mean, she referred to fortune's wheel affecting her. And she's actually, although she has quite a severe reputation, she was actually loved by most of the people that knew her, which I think is something that isn't always brought out when we think about Margaret. We think of her as very sort of severe. But actually, I'm really fond of Margaret Beaufort. We actually refer to her in the All Things Tudor group as notorious MLTKB. My lady, the king's mother, because she has become so controversial. And I love what you're saying because I find her fascinating too. It's definitely a man's world. And somehow she managed to always roll dice the right way, didn't she? She did. And I mean, there's real suffering in her life. She's separated from her only child for almost all of his childhood. And we can see that that hurts her greatly. Any opportunity she gets, she's there sort of trying to get young Henry back. So no, I mean, she is really notorious now. And I've actually, she's really the one figure that I feel it's really unjust. She is very political. She is very domineering, but she is always acting in the best interest of her child and what she thinks is the best interest. So I am fond of Margaret, but I know it's quite a controversial opinion. It is. And didn't she bring in some traditions that are still emulated by your royals, some coronation rituals, things like that? No, no. So she's famous for ordinances and sort of setting out the regulations for the royal court. She's supposed to have been the one who wrote the birth regulations for a queen, which involves a queen in sort of a very stuffy birthing chamber with no windows, with just like, tapestries covering the wall and the windows and just one small removable tapestry in case the queen wants a little bit of air. So she is clearly trying to cement the Tudors on the throne because she comes out of a period of such turbulence. But yeah, so her influence is still there on the current royal family, I would say, to some extent. She's certainly very responsible for sort of the construction of the Tudor dynasty and how it presents itself. Well, you are very well known for your expertise on the Tudor era. And as I understand it, you're part of the Boleyn Scandalous Family, which will air here in the U.S. on PBS. Is that correct? That is correct, yes. I'm very excited that it's finally getting an air date in the U.S. We're all so excited. We can't wait to see it. Can you tell us about your part in the series and how you got involved? We just want to know everything. So it was such an exciting series to be involved in. I'm so privileged to be in it and also to have acted as consultant on it. So there are three episodes and I'm in all three of them as a talking head, if you like, sort of explaining what's happening and, you know, what's going on with the wider Berlin family at this point. I was originally brought in to advocate for George Berlin, actually. So to be sort of, in many respects, to try and get inside George's head to a certain extent and 
bring out his story and what might be happening to him and what he might be thinking and feeling. My role broadened with the filming and I actually don't just talk about George, but it was sort of originally, I mean, it was very much trying to have a new take on these people that we think we know in the Berlin family, but trying to sort of tease out actually, where are we getting these ideas from? Are they correct? Is there another interpretation? And I was also really lucky to be able to work as a consultant on the series, one of several. So I was involved in going through the sort of early versions of the episodes, which is really fascinating and sort of stepping in with some of the with historical accuracy on the dramatizations because actually it's such an exciting project it has these dramatizations so we have a wonderful Anne Boleyn and other members of the family which is really great to see and I think it works really well and there are a number of really excellent historians who appear throughout with these dramatic moments you're gonna love it I hope you love it it sounds like something completely new so they have dramatizations and they also have talking heads that are historians. Is that the way it's, it's laid out? Yes, it is. So we see the scenes, We're obviously using actors and costumes, but we also have historians talking on screen saying, you know, what is happening here? So I think it is a relatively new approach. Certainly, it's the first time I've been involved in a documentary, which has made use so much of dramatizations. And I think it works really well. Well, let's talk about George Boleyn. What can you tell us that you found out? How did you research for the part or the character study? Just tell us everything. So George Boleyn is so fascinating because he's right at the center of Anne's story. And yet we don't even have a portrait of him. We don't really know what he looks like. And he's this character that has this meteoric rise largely through his relationship to his sister. But also, I mean, he's an intelligent young man himself and he's been groomed by his father for a career in diplomacy and a career as a courtier. But he's so fascinating because he, in many respects, he's sort of Anne's male counterpart, if you like. You know, she is interested in religious reform and we know that he is too. In fact, I mean, he translates a work for her based on the tradition of French religious reform. And he's always involved and he's so clearly part of Anne's story. And of course, he eventually dies with Anne. He is one of the men she's accused of adultery with him. He is the incest in the charge sheet. You know, obviously, we know there's no truth in those charges. You know, I think it's fair to say that almost nobody believes that Anne was guilty of adultery and incest. However, you know, the fact that George is selected to be brought down, I think really sort of shows his importance to Anne. And also the fear that Anne's enemies at court have over George's role. And, you know, they want to bring him down too. So he is really fascinating because, of course, he dies really young. I mean, he's about 29 when he dies, roughly. I mean, we just don't really know with the Berlin children, but he's roughly 29 years old. And he has this amazing career, but also a fall as dramatic as Anne's. And I think that's not always brought out because we tend to focus so much on his sister rather than George himself. Quick question about George, because I don't know that much about him. Was he educated in the European courts the way his sisters were? No. So George is raised in England, as far as we can tell. Possibly attends university, certainly educated at home and well-educated. It's quite likely that when the Berlin sisters are educated as children, they're in fact sharing George's tutors because... Actually, we're a generation before it becomes fashionable to educate girls in the period. So actually, you know, the tutors are going to be engaged for George. But he is raised in England. 
And he's the family's only son. He's clearly intended for great things by a family as ambitious as the Berlins. Well, thank you for that. The Berlins, a scandalous family, an epic tale of hubris and ambition. They're all here. Thomas Bolin and his three children, Mary, Anne and George. Elizabeth I also makes an appearance. The show premieres on PBS on Sundays, August 28th, September 4 and September 11th. Also available on the PBS video app. Special thanks go to Georgia Public Broadcasting for their support of all things Tudor. What about his marriage? Let's talk about his wife and her role in this. How did she stand by and watch her husband be accused of incest with the Queen? So Jane Parker, Lady Rochford, who is George's wife, is, I would say to a large extent, another Tudor woman that's it's actually quite maligned. And again, I mean, she's so unpopular. It's, it's a difficult one to stand out again. So I don't want to look like I'm just coming in and saying, no, everyone's maligned. But I do think Lady Rochford, there is something to be said for reevaluating her. She is George's wife. She has very, very strong court connections. Her father is Henry Parker, Lord Morley, and he has served Margaret Beaufort in his youth. He knows everyone at court. It's a really good marriage for George. Her father certainly has an association with Princess Mary, which in some respects sort of puts us slightly at odds with the Boleyns, but she marries George. They don't have any children, as far as we can tell, and there's no evidence that they have children. We know that she is associated with Anne Boleyn during Anne's queenship at one stage where they conspire to try and get one of Henry's mistresses removed from court and it backfires and actually Jane is sent away from court instead. There's a, some suggestion that she is then in disfavour because um, she supports Princess Mary, although it, there aren't many details of what this is and whether it's actually her. So the details we have for Jane are quite sparse. What we have suggests that she's a good wife to George. There's nothing to suggest that she does anything to participate in his fall. And I know her reputation tends to suggest that she's informing against Anne and George and that she's the source of the charges against them. And I think a lot of this is based on her subsequent role in Catherine Howard's apparent love affair with Thomas Culpepper. She is the lady-in-waiting who acts as a chaperone when Catherine Howard, Henry's fifth wife, is meeting with Thomas Culpepper in private. And she's executed by Henry for her role in that in 1542. So I think we sort of look on her as a bad woman to some extent. She's traditionally believed to have given evidence against George, but there's not actually any evidence for that. What we do have is she sends a message to George saying she'll try to speak to the king. And he thanks her for that when he's in the tower. After his death, it doesn't look like she has been well paid for any information if she gives it, because actually she falls on hard times. She has to actually petition for funds. And what we do know is she seems to have always worn black after George's death. So she appears as a grieving widow, at least. And, you know, actually Tudors rapidly remarry quite often. A woman of high status as her, she could quite easily find another husband. The fact that she doesn't remarry and she continues to present herself as a widow in black, I think actually does mean that we maybe should reevaluate their relationship and how we think about Jane. So she is another woman that I think actually gets an unfair deal, if you like. Well, you bring up some very valid points on that. Thank you. And I have more questions about George. In your opinion, your educated opinion, 
why was he included as part of Anne's downfall? Is it the complete humiliation of incest? Is it, did he do something to anger the king that you know of? Was there one thing? Are there many things? I think there are many reasons why George is brought in on the charge sheet. I think partly if you really want to blacken someone's name, accuse them of incest. I mean, I think that goes for any period in history. It looks really, really bad and it's difficult to come back from that. And I think the reason George is included is because he is really dangerous to Anne's enemies at court because, you know, she is brought down by a number of factions and certainly she falls out with Thomas Cromwell. Eustace Chapuis, the imperial ambassador, gathers together with Cromwell. So do the Seymours. And they've, of course, got Jane Seymour, who is their candidate as Anne's replacement. And, of course, Henry himself, although he seems to waver about what he's going to do about Anne, is he going to stay in his marriage? Is he not? He's certainly engaged to Jane Seymour before Anne's fall. You know, Chapuis refers to him as the happiest cuckold he's ever seen. You know, he's clearly not upset about the charges against Anne. And I think there are a number of factors. And I think George is just too dangerous to stay alive because he is a powerful young man. He's risen high through the court. He is very, very associated with his sister. If you leave him alive, you know, perhaps he might find a way of taking action against Anne's enemies. And I think he's just so associated with her. What I would also say is that although the, there's clearly no truth in the charges, actually the men with whom Anne is accused, apart from probably poor old Brereton, who doesn't really seem to have known her, the others, there's a little bit of evidence against all of them that's enough to kind of construct a somewhat plausible case. And I'm not in any way saying that she committed adultery, but, you know, for example, she does seem to have flirted with Henry Norris and she does seem to have been alone with her brother George on occasion. She herself names Francis Weston and, you know, sort of talks about a flirtatious comment. She also mentions an incident with Mark Smeaton where, again, it's quite flirtatious, particularly on his side. Thomas Wyatt and Sir Richard Page are also arrested and they're not tried for adultery with Anne, which again suggests that they did need some level of evidence to bring them down. And again, it's sort of hearsay. It's just sort of flirtatious moments. It's not adultery, but it's kind of just enough to ensure that the jury are going to convict, I would say. And I think George very much falls into that category that there's enough rope, if you like, to hang him with his behaviour with his sister. But of course, it's his sister you would expect him to speak to her alone and for her to announce her pregnancy to him. But it can be twisted to look a lot worse than it is. And I think that's what happens, really. When you were researching from this, did you pull from any of your own works? Or how did you find your research so George and the wider Berlin family have been a sort of a focus of my research for years. One of my really early books was a sort of a little biography of Anne Boleyn, kind of intended to be quite introductory. I then published The Berlin Women, which is a book about the women in the family going right back into the medieval period. And Lady Rochford, Jane Parker, she's a particularly big character in this. Anne Boleyn, of course, Anne's mother. And George, of course, crops up in that quite a bit. And then, of course, I published the Anne Boleyn Papers, which is a source book. So a collection of the sources on 
Anne Boleyn and the people associated with her. So I used a lot of my own research, particularly in, in my research towards the Boleyns of Scandalous Family. Particularly the source book is always useful. I mean, my copy is well thumbed of my own source book. And there are other works. I mean, George, he's quite young. There's no picture about him. You know, there aren't that many works on him. He's a big character in Among the Wolves of Court by Lauren Mackay, which is, of course, a really important book to the production. But yeah, I mean, basically going back to the sources, particularly in my source book, and looking at what am I seeing about George? What's he doing? Why is he doing that? Thinking about things like that. That's really fascinating. And I love hearing you talk about your own work. So please feel free to share anything because your books are fantastic and they are good reference works and I highly recommend them. One question, I know there was a Victorian writer that suggested that Henry had George and some of the other gentlemen arrested because it was a cover-up for a gay undercurrent at court. What do you think about that? Yeah, so there has, particularly in recent years, been the suggestion that George is gay and that he's possibly in a relationship, particularly with Mark Smeaton. He may or may not have been gay. There isn't any evidence, really, to sort of suggest that he is. He is referred to by Cavendish, who is a contemporary of his and knows him as being licentious. He defiles maidens, for example, but virgins. But I mean, that sort of seems to refer to women rather than men. So no, I mean, it would be a really interesting side of his character. I don't think that there is any evidence to suggest that he is gay. Equally, you know, there's no evidence to suggest that he's not, I guess. It would be an interesting one. And it has been raised, particularly there is a book where there's a sort of an inscription to a mark, which is suggested to be Mark Smeaton. But again, it is pretty tenuous, to be honest, as much as I'd like to agree, because I think it would be a really interesting side to him and also to his downfall. But I think, unfortunately, there's not anything in it that has ever been found, really. OK, thank you for that. I was just curious your thoughts on it. Let's talk about your books. How many books have you published, Elizabeth? So I've written quite a few. I think it is 12 of these. Some of them are sort of shorter introductories and some are sort of more in-depth. I love publishing books. It's always fantastic and it's always great when you get good feedback, less so when you get bad feedback. <laughs> well, I don't really see a lot of bad feedback on anything you've ever done. So how can we find you on social media? So, oh, and it's very kind of you to say that. Yeah, so I am most often on Twitter. So that's the best place you can find me. I'm on there quite a lot. I would love it if anyone wants to come and say hi. I am E. Norton History. Elizabeth Norton was taken. Otherwise, I am on Facebook. I'm not on there as regularly, but Twitter is really where you will find me. Well, thank you for being here today. Do you have anything to add about the Blends, a scandalous family for us? It's such a pleasure to have been invited on here today. What I would say is watch the show. And I really hope that everyone listening to this really enjoys it because it is very much a different take. And particularly on Thomas Boleyn, it really draws on new research into Thomas and that perhaps he's not the bad guy that we sort of tend to think of him as. So I think come to it with sort of fresh eyes, if you like, and watch the show. And with all the leading characters and all the members of the family, think actually, let's see this sort of new perspective. And it's very much focused on the Berlins. I mean, nobody is actually really cast as Henry in the dramatisation. So it very much focuses on the Berlins. And I think that's such 
a great idea for a series. I'm so thrilled to be a part of it. Thanks for bringing that up. I'm curious to see how this goes over with Americans because we see ambition as being a good character trait. I don't believe we see it the way the rest of the world does. So I'm curious to see if it changes a lot of people's thinkings on Thomas and George Boleyn once it airs. Yeah, I, I really hope so. And I mean, I don't think ambition is a bad thing either. I think it's a totally natural human character trait. And I think it is so interesting to see the Boleyns. They rise through the generations and then you really hit Thomas and it just goes meteoric. And I think that's an important thing to stress with the Boleyns is that it doesn't start with Anne, it starts with Thomas. And I think that's a really interesting perspective. And you're absolutely right. The theme of the show is probably ambition. You know, we're looking at ambition sort of writ large, but it's not a negative, I would say. I think there are negatives and positives, but I think the positives outweigh the negatives in the Boleyns case. Good point. And I look forward to seeing you on there and appreciate you for joining me today. Again, the Balanza Scandalous Family aired on PBS in the U.S. beginning August 28th with future shows in the series on September 4th and September 11th. So thank you, Elizabeth. And thank you all for joining us. For our listeners, thank you for making the magic happen. Please subscribe to the podcast, leave a review, and have a great day, everyone. Thanks, Elizabeth. Thank you very much for having me. You've been listening to All Things Tudor. My thanks go to listeners, my husband, and my team. If you like what you hear, leave a review, follow wherever you get your podcast, and share with your friends to help others find the show. Join the All Things Tudor Facebook community to connect with tens of thousands of Tudor history lovers. You can also connect with me across social media at the Deb ATL. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch y'all later.